There's a, an extra piece of paper uh, that was in your seat when you arrived, and maybe you moved it to the side, and, and maybe you thought that somebody else sat down in your seat at first. I'm sorry if that was the case. Uh, also, there's no saved seats here, you know, so just to throw that out there, but uh, just in, in general, you know, we don't always do this, but uh, today's message is packed tighter than a bumblebee tuna can, right? So, um, so there's a lot of information in today, and that's not normally how we roll, um, but I couldn't figure out a good place to divide this and have it flow well. So what we're going to do is today's going to be more about teaching than our typical messages, so it's going to give you a lot of information to think about. Uh, some of you are like, finally, right? Like some of you, that's how you want to roll every Sunday, but some of you like the relaxed relational pace that we usually have on Sunday morning, so uh, if, if that's you, you know, you'll make it stretch when you're done. Uh, we won't give you any intellectual blisters, and this is for you to take some notes on and uh, take home and think about a little bit more. So on the front, uh, there's a little bit of a chart. There's our big idea for the Sunday here, okay? And then on the back, there's some place for notes. Now, when we get to this, these slides, I don't want you to feel like you have to write down everything that I say or even that's on the screen, and if you try, you're going to be angry with me. And so don't try. If you really want all that information, email Zara or myself, and we'll get you the actual text from the screen, uh, and you can always watch again online or listen on the podcast if you're looking for this information. But So we're going to download it very quickly. You're probably going to feel like Neo in the Matrix, but instead of 4.5 seconds, it's going to take you 45 minutes to get all that information. Uh, so there, there you go. Make sure that you take advantage of that. Folks at home, uh, sorry I'm not technological enough to post that online in the comments, but if you email the church office, we can get you this document. Um, and also, just I, I want to be clear, I really like the information that's on here. I am not the inventor of this information, right? So much of the things that we teach you on Sunday mornings, all of us pastors, they're not, we develop them to communicate with you. But we are often not the author of the source material, right? We're copying some information, and we're often standing on the shoulders of other giants who have done the work in advance. And so we're trying to speak old truth to you in a novel, new, and culturally relevant way. So if, when you see this, don't, don't go, that guy is amazing, or that guy's loony. Uh, other people are loony and amazing, and I'm just acting like them today. All right. So, now all the caveats are out of the way. That was only three and a half minutes. Whew, we got to get going. So, um, I, as I mentioned earlier, I love reading about Jesus in the Gospels. I love reading stories and acts in the New Testament. I love watching God's church continue to grow, his kingdom unfold in individual lives and communities. And in, it's because in all of that, I get a little bit of a glimpse of God and his glory. In 2 Corinthians, Paul actually refers to the revelation of God and his glory, which just means you seeing him, perceiving him a little bit more as our spiritual food which is really awesome to know that as you see God's glory, there's something in that that makes you more fulfilled. Like looking at a sunrise, how fulfilling is it to see a beautiful sunrise? Or staring at the sunset, off the, well, maybe not staring at the sunset, but watching the sunset, right? How glorious is that? And there's something that's fulfilling in your spirit in that way. Well, that's part of why I love reading the Gospels, part of why we've got the Abide Journal this year during our 40 days of, of prayer that we do every year. Um, but there's this story that stands out in the Gospels over and over again to me. I think it's in John 8. Uh, John encounters, um, oh, that's the wrong story. That's the, anyways, I'm forgetting the chapter. Forgive me. Uh, 
But uh, there's a woman at a well, and she is a Samaritan woman, and Jesus is a Jewish man. And if you don't know this, but uh, it'd be really abnormal for a Jewish man to talk to a Samaritan woman. It'd actually be really abnormal for a man who doesn't know a woman to approach her in that culture. That would have been dishonoring and, and filled with the concept of like impropriety. Like, why, why are you talking with her? What are you, what are you trying to do? Um, what do you think about her, that she's willing to talk to you? And so Jesus speaks with her, and he has this really long conversation. The conversation is amazing, but his disciples come at the end of the conversation. It's in the middle of the day, and they show up with lunch, and they're feeling really good about themselves. And they're like, Jesus, we brought you lunch. And in a very Jesus-like fashion, he changes the subject, doesn't let them win the game, and he says, I am already full because I've had food that you cannot see. How would you like to be the disciples in that moment, by the way? You feel like you're finally nailing it, like I'm doing this disciple thing. Jesus is ministering to somebody. We're not going to ask what he wants from the deli. We know that he loves pastrami on rye. We're just going to grab that. We're going to bring it over to him. And you get there, and he's like, no thanks, guys. I already ate. Just can't win with this guy, right? You ever feel like that sometimes, that Jesus is always a step ahead of you? He's doing it out of love, by the way. Um, But what he's talking about is that as you use your spiritual gifts, there's this level of fulfillment that enters your life so that you feel sustained spiritually to the point that your physical body and the needs of your physical body kind of step back a little bit. Isn't that exciting? I, I want to know how to live that sort of life so that my spiritual self is actually leading the way through life and not my physical self leading the way through life because I know that this physical body it's going to get harder to deal with over time because I've talked to a lot of you and you're like aging isn't for wimps right like you got to be tough to do this and I know that some of that toughness is spiritual toughness and so today we're going to talk about spiritual gifts we're actually going to do this for the next few weeks because I didn't want to wait till we got through this series in first Corinthians but the big concept that I want you to know is that when you discover your divine design you will experience fulfillment and fruitfulness deeply in your life. And so we're going to talk about knowing your spiritual gift today. We're going to be in Romans 12, 6 through 8. We're going to be in Ephesians 4, 1 through 13. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, and verse 28. And we're even going to dip our toes in 1 Peter. Beat that, Flint. (laughs) We're supposed to provoke one another to love and good deeds, right? Okay. So again... (laughs) When you discover your divine design and develop that divine design, meaning you've taken that gift and you've cultivated it, you will experience fulfillment and fruitfulness. So let's, let's look at some of the places in the New Testament where you can learn about your spiritual gifting. So in Romans 12, 6 and following, which is what FF means, if you see that on the screen behind me, by the way, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, use it in teaching. If exhorting, use it in exhortation. You're getting the drift here, right? Giving, do it with generosity. Leading, with diligence. Showing mercy, with cheerfulness. Wow, that's really encouraging, right? So it's talking about some gifts. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says this. Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. 
In Ephesians 4, I love hearing some of you turn there. Ephesians 4, verse 11, it says, And he himself gave, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. So those are three of the four main passages. And the fourth one is 1 Peter 10. And we're not going to go to that one, but basically Peter's paradigm for spiritual gifts is this. There are two types of gifts, he says. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. And if you're speaking, make sure that you do it with sober seriousness, knowing that you are speaking the oracles of God. Wow, how's that for a mantle laid on your shoulders, small group leaders? You're like, I thought I was just hosting people for coffee and a good conversation. And Peter's like, be careful. This is serious, right? Like, this is fire in the kitchen. It's knives on the cutting board. It's the gas pedal of life, and you need to use it responsibly. And then Peter also says, there are serving gifts. And if you serve, serve diligently as unto the Lord. So he's saying, if you're, if you're a serving type of person, recognize that this just isn't light work. You, you, you might think that you're over there straightening Betty Lou's draperies, right? But you're actually you're serving Jesus, and you're straightening his draperies. And the way you love Betty Lou is the way that you love Jesus. And so Peter is trying to focus us to center on Jesus and his work in our lives and through our lives, and so is Paul, by the way. But there's these sort of different patterns in the midst of that. I mean, have you ever been confusing, confused about these things? I mean, how, how do you view gifts? When you read all these passages, you're, what, do you, what do you do with that? Do you, do you just stack up this like list of gifts and it's like Santa Claus is coming to town and if you're hearing Michael Jackson in your head right now, me too, and, and so you're waiting for these gifts to be revealed around you and you're wondering what of the 72 gifts you have? Anybody in that category? I've been in that category for a long time where I just sort of compile this list and I go, this must be all the gifts. And then I've heard people say things, and I've thought this way, just so we're clear, that these probably even aren't all of the gifts. You know, like, where's hospitality? Like, that's listed later in Romans, and it's talking about a, a ministry or service, but isn't that a gift? And so there's all sorts of ways that we do ministry, and we tend to make each of those ministries a specific gift. And then some people are just totally confused by the gifts, and they're like, I don't even know. I'm just going to do things that Jesus asks me to do, and hopefully he blesses it, because it's just confusing, and I don't even want to spend the time thinking about myself to figure out what my gift is. So unless if there's some sort of billboard on the side of the road one day that says, like, Ethel, your gift is encouragement, then I'm just going to do Jesus things from here on out. Ethel, I love you, by the way, if you're listening today. Uh, so, so, you know, there's different ways that we would understand it. But I would like to propose something to you today. What if these were a framework for awesome understanding and fruitfulness? What if it just wasn't an unstructured list, but that these passages, that the words that the Holy Spirit chose to use through the inspired author of scriptures are actually adding up to something more significant than a spaghetti pile of spiritual gifts that we get to eat one forkful at a time? What if God is presenting to us through the scripture a better way of understanding these gifts that would organize the church, help us navigate our diversity and appreciate one another, that would lead to maturity and coordination within the church, that would lead to fulfillment and fruitfulness in your ministry. And what if when you saw it in that way and understood it in that way, that you would know where you fit, you would recognize where God is calling you, and you would appreciate the other callings of people around you even more?
Would you be interested in checking that out and understanding it a little bit? Me too. Now, just to be bluntly honest, it wasn't until I started studying 1 Corinthians and preparing to teach this that I encountered this, which instantly gave me yellow flags. Because when you encounter new truth about the Bible, that term often belongs with cults who change the truth of God to avoid accountability to the previous lies that they've already told. It's like a little kid who keeps changing the story and you can't nail them down, right? This is often how cults operate. So when I first encountered this, I was like, boy, that's weird. I usually respect that teacher. I don't know why he thinks that. And then I prayed about it though. I was like, Lord, I, I just respect this guy so much. I can't imagine that he is just way off the reservation here. So I said, so I'm going to need you to lead me and teach me if you want me to understand. And then within a week, I was talking with another pastor, and we weren't even talking about spiritual gifts, and he just mentioned this framework, same exact language that this other teacher uses, and he doesn't listen to that teacher. And I was like, that's weird, two guys all at once. So then I decided, all right, I'm really going to have to put on my research hat and dig into this, and I discovered this whole treasure trove of theologians and pastors who view this this way, and it, and it clicked in my head, and it became a beneficial pattern for understanding this, for understanding how the church works, for understanding my own spiritual gift, and for navigating some of the difficulties that I've seen in the church that happen over and over again, not just in this church, but among people with different giftings. Now, that being said, there's freedom here. And I still don't want to cause diversity over spiritual gifts. And you, if you walk away valuing your spaghetti pile more than you value this waffle, it's just fine. We don't have to organize things in this way. I hope that you're blessed and encouraged nonetheless. But there's this framework, and we can see it in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 5 through 7. I'm going to flip there in my Bible just so that we can unpack it a little bit. So Paul says this. He says, there are different ministers, or pardon me, did I start in the wrong verse? Uh, Verse 4, okay. Uh, There are different gifts, but the same spirit. And he uses the word charismata there, right? Which just means gift, okay? So so that term charismatic, it it doesn't mean wild demonstrative. It it just means gift of the Holy Spirit. And it, it actually, the term charis connects to hand, So God has laid his hand on you in a specific way, and he's given you spiritual abilities, and he does that in every believer's life. And then he says right after that, there are different ministries, but the same Lord. And the word there that is translated ministries in most of our texts is actually service, and the Greek word there is diakona, or diakonia, right? And the, the deacons of the church are the servers of the church, but everybody who served in the New Testament was called a diakona or a diakonia, depending upon the, the sentence structure. That doesn't really matter, the, the grammar. Uh, but the concept here is different ways of serving within the church. And then he says in uh, verse 7, and there are different activities, or your translation might say results, but the same God produces each gift and each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. Now, in most of your English translations, 
there's a period between verse 6 and verse 7, but in my reading of this and my study of this over the last couple of weeks, I think that maybe it should be a colon or a dash there. Now, I don't say these things very often because it can be confusing for people who are new to studying the Bible, but when we look at the ancient texts that the Bible is translated from, which, by the way, are ancient, and they exist in very close proximity to when they were actually written, uh, they copied it in a very efficient manner. So paper right now is cheap and easy to come by. You throw away paper probably every day of your life, and there's a good chance that you're like, why do I keep getting so much paper? Why do they send me junk mail? Why does the government send me this? Why do I have to print this out? Why do I have to maintain a file cabinet? We're inundated in paper. But in the culture then, and for the first several hundred years of the church history, in fact, even through probably up to this last century, paper was a relatively rare and valuable commodity. In fact, they didn't even commonly use paper, not as we use it. They might have had papyrus, which was made by beating uh, small pulpy things like bamboo or reeds into paste and then drying that and cutting it. Then they made scrolls. But more often what they used is something called vellum, which isn't just something that you get at Hobby Lobby. It was an animal skin that was split or scraped very thin And then they would write on that and they would roll that up and they would use that for their letters and for their documents. Now, vellum was so valuable that let's say you sent a letter to somebody else, what they might do is they might take the vellum down to the local leather maker and have him strip off a layer of that leather so that you could write a new letter on that same one. So they reused it over and over again. It's very valuable. And uh, just like a Twitter account, you needed to cram as much as possible into a little space, right? So they only had 144 characters or so, right? And so what they did is they made everything, they wrote it all out in capital letters, they didn't put any space between the words, and they didn't use any punctuation. It's a fourth grade teacher's nightmare, right? (laughs) The only thing that helps you understand it is that the Greek text, which is what it was written in, the ancient Koine Greek, uh, used different pieces of grammar to denote the structure of sentences. But sometimes, because we're translating into English, we put extra periods and colons and semicolons and dashes and other things in place to make it make sense to us where they wouldn't have. In fact, Ephesians 1 is basically one sentence. Isn't that wild? But we chop it up because that sentence doesn't make sense to us. Because Paul uses a verb up here in verse 3, and it's the same verb that he still means down in verse 11, but we would never talk that way, right? Unless if we're making a grocery shopping list. But that's not a letter. These are letters, so we make it sound like English. Well, in this case, when we go through this sentence, there's this structure that's provided for us. And we, we like the structure, but at the same time, it's confusing to us. So he starts with different gifts, different ministries, different activities, and that manifestation piece is an explanation of those activities, and he's going then, right after this, he talks about what those different manifestations are, and he addresses the fact that within Corinth, they were valuing one specific manifestation. Anybody remember what that was? Tongues, the gift of tongues, or the manifestation of tongues, if we're being more accurate, over the rest of the manifestations. And they were forgetting about all of the rest of the structure of spiritual gifts that Paul had taught them. And so Paul reminds them, hey, this is how spiritual gifts are. There's gifts, 
and then there's services, and then there's energies or manifestations. And you're grabbing a hold of this one manifestation and saying, if you have this, you're the most spiritual person in the world. And Paul's like, you've got it backwards. You've got it all wrong. That's just one instance of the Holy Spirit working. And then at the end of the chapter, he goes through again at verse 28, and he talks about what the ministries are within the church. Right? He's got apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. And that's actually very similar to the Ephesians 4 list, right? which is the diaconia, the gifts of service or ministries. Okay. So this is my proposal for the framework, and not just mine, uh, but others as well. And, and I want you to, I hope that as you follow along, it will become clearer and clearer how this framework works. Okay, so there are seven motivational gifts. Okay, that's the first thing that's listed in 1 Corinthians 12 there. There are various gifts, and these are motivational gifts. The first one that Paul lists, I'll just flip back over there, uh, he says... According to the grace given us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it in proportion to one's faith. So that's the first gift. If service, which is like helps doing uh, deeds for others to care for them, we'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, then do it according to the service that you've been given to be able to do. If teaching, teach what you know. If exhorting, do it according to the encouragement that's inside of you. If giving, do it cheerfully. Do it cheerfully. You know, sometimes when you're writing that third check for the same thing and there's a budget overrun again, it's a little hard to do that with a genuine smile. But the the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, keep giving liberally and generously. I'm going to supply all of your needs, so don't fear. If leading, do it diligently, right? Because sometimes when you're leading other people, they don't want to be led all the time. And it can become frustrating And so then we can start to wane in our diligence. And when we do that, we either get out the goad and we start poking the people in the hindquarters with the sharp words, right, and the threatening tone, or I'm out of here. If you just, if you're like this, I'm not even, you know, you told me you wanted to do this thing, but you don't, and clearly you're not cooperating, so I, I quit, right? And, and the Lord's saying, hey, leading people is hard. You, th- you think he might know that, right? You lead the old te- read the Old Testament, you're like, wow, the Lord is a patient leader, because people often don't want to follow, right? It's like everybody has their own will, and it's hard for us to lay our own desires down to do something greater than we ourselves could do on our own. And then he says, in showing mercy, uh, do it with cheerfulness as well. Because sometimes when you're walking with people through the valley and you don't have to be in the valley, it gets a little tough, right? And some of you are called to mercy and you know that there's a point where it ends your ability to have mercy and you need to rely on the Lord's mercy then. And so he's saying, hey, maintain good cheer as you're merciful to others, you people who are gifted with mercy. So those are the seven motivational gifts. So, um, we're going to talk about the 10 ministry gifts now, and these are from Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, and 1 Corinthians 12, 28. If you're not familiar with the Ephesians 4 chapter, Paul uses these gifts that he talks about. It's uh, apostles through teaching on the right, is that left hand for you? Left hand side. Uh, and then he says, these have been given for the building up of the church so that the church can come to maturity in Christ together. And so these are ministry gifts or services that everybody in the church ends up involved in in some way. And so he says there are apostles, and there are prophets, and there are evangelists, and there are pastors, and there are teachers. 
And then in 1 Corinthians, he expands that list. And he says, and there's various kinds of service, and there's the working of miracles, and there's healing, and there's leading, and there's various kinds of tongues. And he says all of these gifts are distributed through the church, these ministry gifts, so that the church can come together and be built up into maturity in Christ. So what does that maturity in Christ mean? Well, that means that each of us is growing in the character of Christ, right? We're being transformed so that we can love like Jesus, so that we can be faithful like Jesus, so that we can lay our, our own egos down like Jesus, all of the things that are involved in being Jesus-like. But then beyond that, that the church would also be accomplishing the mission that God called us to in the way that God called us to, so that we are sharing the gospel with those who are saved and believed and those who do not yet believe, and we're doing it in a way that constantly displays love for God and love for the people around us, just like we would love ourselves. And so these ministries exist in the church for the building up of the church. How many of you have been blessed by one of this type of ministry? Yeah, me too. Pretty constantly, actually, as I participate in the life of the church. How many of you have engaged in these sorts of ministries? Yeah, how many of you have engaged in these sorts of ministries and they're not your gift and you know it? Yeah, me too. And it's because these things are skills that can be trained into other people. You don't have to be the best at service to show up on Saturday and serve with the rest of your church. You might not even like to get your hands dirty and they're like, you're going to go pull weeds. And you say, okay, I'm going to go pull weeds because you're a willing heart and you're going to engage in that service. And all of those other things can be the same way. I can teach you to pastor well if you're interested in it. Others in the church can teach you to pray for healing well, which is pretty wild to think about, that there are people who are gifted in the ministry of healing and that we would need to be equipped with their heart and their knowledge to demonstrate the love and power of God. Because maybe you're lost. You know, your neighbor calls and says, will you pray for my daughter? She's really sick. And you say yes, and you get off the phone, and you say, you heard that, Lord? Thanks. And then you just move on because you're lost on the whole thing and you don't know how to handle it. And the best thing you could do is punt. And you know what? God is great at returning punts. But maybe there's more to it than that, right? And so this ministry concept is for equipping one another. They're transferable skills, but some of us have this expression of our primary gift so that we can train other people to do that as well as God has made us to, able to do that supernaturally. And then finally, there are nine manifestation gifts, right? So these are specific energies. So the word here is uh, energesia. And so that, that connects directly conceptually in a similar way to the way we think about energy. So these are divine energies that are poured out. These are things like word of wisdom, word of knowledge. You know, Connie said, she said she has the gift of mercy, right? Remember that panel? But then in the midst of it, she said sometimes... I receive words of knowledge or maybe words of wisdom where a scripture comes to mind and she says, hey, this has direct bearing on our situation. Isn't that cool that there's this combo? So she, her motivation gift is mercy, but sometimes it manifests itself in words of knowledge or words of wisdom that are probably about caring for others, helping them connect to the Lord or other people. Maybe not, but they connect through that primary motivation most of the time. Then there's faith, Chuck Polnitz. Chuck, where are you? Are you still in here? I saw Karen. I didn't see Chuck. He's not here today. That's fine. He's at home. So Chuck has the gift of faith. And sometimes when Chuck is looking at the room and he doesn't know what else to say, he just says, can you guys believe how awesome God is? And there's something in that that's a little bit spiritually electrifying because everybody's like, 
yeah, God is really awesome, right? And he's like, he can hype the crowd up about faith in Christ. And sometimes when I'm praying with Chuck and it's just he and I, I am waiting for the ground to shake and the roof to open up and God to just descend and be like, I hear you, Chuck. Because he has this manifestation of faith that's powerful and awesome. Then there's healing and miracles and prophecy and discernment and various tongues and then the interpretation of tongues. And all of these are individual manifestations working out at various times. And some of us struggle with this because these manifestations, they don't always happen consistently. Have you ever been involved in a group of people and you're praying for the healing of somebody and then all of a sudden you get word by the time your small group is over that that person is better and you're like, that was amazing. This has happened to me before. You know, like I remember as a believer, I just got this new job. It was at a Christian company and we had our our monthly staff meeting the first day that I started there. And the, the first thing that we did is we spent 45 minutes gathering prayer requests and praying for each other. I'd never been in a company that did this. This wasn't a church, by the way. It was a a parachurch organization, and it blew my mind. And the last prayer request that was shared was from this guy named Owen who became my friend, and his grandma had just visited, and she was a deep encouragement to everybody who was there and the youth that we were serving, many of whom didn't believe in Christ and who were even hard in their hearts towards Christ. But her time there softened the hardest of these guys because of her gentle, consistent love and generosity. And it was shared that she had just been rushed to the hospital with a major heart attack, and they didn't expect her to survive the day. I was like, wow. And and my heart was moved. I didn't even know this person. And as we prayed, I just felt the Lord say, she's going to be fine. I didn't share that with anybody. But by the end of the shift, Owen came out of the office, and he said, Grandma's going to be fine. And I was like, I knew it. But then I've been in other meetings where we pray, and it's like a deflated balloon. And I'm like, God, how come this manifestation happens in this way over here, but it doesn't happen over here in the same way? Well, that's, that's the nature of manifestations. It's God's work in that moment as the final result of that motivational gift through those ministry gifts to the ground right there, the boots on the ground in that moment. And God works in various ways, and that's a cultural thing too. It has to do with what we're open to and what we're willing to desire and what we're willing to let God do. Isn't that interesting that we could even limit some of these manifestation gifts by just saying, I'm not interested in that, God. Sometimes God knocks those walls down. He's like, sorry, you're not going to limit me today. But sometimes he just respects that. And he says, if, if, you're, not, if you're not willing, then, then that's okay. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? How Jesus said, one thing you lack to that young man, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And the young man left sorrowfully, but did Jesus chase after him? He said, no, that's your choice, right? And we can do that same thing as believers. But getting back to the point in hand today, knowing your primary spiritual gift opens the door to profound ministry. And there's some facts that I want to share with you about these motivational gifts, right? So if you have your chart, which apparently... I don't have. Those are the gifts that are on the far left of the chart, those motivational gifts. So this is what we're talking about. So each must occur in the life of every believer for spiritual growth to happen. So these motivational gifts, you need all of them to happen so that you can grow up in Christ. Thank you, Valerie. That's very thoughtful. So, uh, so for instance, you know, if you don't have anybody to teach you 
truth about God, or you're not engaged in a ministry that teaches you the Bible very specifically and very directly, there's a good chance that your faith is going to stay immature for a long time because you're not developing a fund of knowledge about God, and you're missing some primary truths about who he is and what he does, and you're going to have these huge gaps in your knowing God, and you're going to have all of these questions, and quite frankly, a lot of doubt and a lot of confusion as you read the text, because you just, you just don't get it all, and you need somebody to teach you so that you would understand. Marcus is really good at this. Marcus has a class every Sunday morning that's about teaching people the Word of God. Steve Fisher is really good at this. He's just ending a class about basic Christian doctrine. These are two ways to teach. One is sort of a structured theology, and one is a structure that follows the Word of God. And you know what? There are people who resonate with both of those. I resonate really strongly with biblical theology. I like marching through the Word, and I can connect it up that way. I struggle with systematic theology, but I have friends who thrive on that. And when I talk biblical theology, I see their eyes turn into Krispy Kremes, right? They're just like, they just get those donut eyes. They glaze over. They really want things to be presented systematically. And when they start talking about systematic theology, I look like Scooby-Doo after the ghost came out. You know, I'm like, get me out of here. I'm so disinterested in this. But both are valid and good forms of teaching. And all of these gifts need to happen into your life for you to become mature. And what's amazing is that God has given you one of these ministry gifts, these motivational gifts, so that you can help other people in the church mature. That means that you need to be exercising your gift for my benefit and for the benefit of everybody around you. This is one of the things that comes to my mind when I meet Christians that are like, I don't need to be a part of the church. I'm like, that's great. Fish don't need water to swim in either, right? but it really helps them live well, you know. We need to express these gifts to each other in the body of Christ, and it's vital for each of us to grow to receive them and then also to use these gifts. So then knowing your primary spiritual gift opens the door to profound potential, okay? So some of you have been in the spiritual life for a while, and you're like, there's got to be something more. I've been in all the Bible studies. I'm, I'm in a small group. I, I listen to Christian music and I worship God and I love worshiping God. I've got my favorite podcast that I listen to. I go, to. I go to conferences and I'm just full of all of this knowledge, but there's just something missing. Often what it is, is the regular use of their primary spiritual gift. God has not just made you to be a recipient of grace, but an exporter of grace. And he wants to teach you to use this primary gift And when you understand this primary gift and you start operating within it, man, it is electrifying. I mean, I've got to tell you, I go home every Sunday and I'm tired because this takes a lot of physical energy, but it's hard to rest because inside I'm just so excited about using my primary spiritual gifts, right? And I'm just, I can't believe how fun it is to do this. And I say that often. I have the best job in the world. And some of you guys are like, I would never do your job. Well, it's, it's not your primary spiritual gift. Flint has said that, right? I remember coming back from the sabbatical and I was sitting in the parking lot out there when we did the drive-in church thing and I remember him saying, I feel like I've just discovered the purpose of my life and I wish that I knew it sooner and it's so exciting. Flint has discovered that his primary spiritual gift is teaching and he operates in that gift and it's personally fulfilling to him. It's challenging though sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, but it's incredibly fulfilling and it motivates you to keep going, okay? God wants that for each of you. 
He wants you to know your primary spiritual gift and to receive this divine energy in your life as you use it. Okay, that being said, now we're going to really get to the meat of this message. That was all kind of preamble, and we're going to talk about these specific motivational gifts. Now, remember I said that you're not going to be able to write everything down. On the back of this, there's the list of the gifts, right? And there's some space to write, and maybe there's some key phrases that might stick out as I talk about this. Not everything I'm going to say is going to be on the screen, but I want you to think of red light, green light, okay? So when you're driving down the road and there's a green light in front of you, what does that mean? Pick up the pace. That's right. Don't wait for that yellow light. I mean, just go the speed limit and see what happens, right? So go. But when there's a yellow light, what do you do? You slow down, right? You're like, maybe I can go, maybe I can't go. And, and some of you are like, no, that's when you really romp the gas, right? Like, <laughs> listen, we're not in Texas. That's not how we roll here, okay? And, and then there's the red light. And what does that mean? Close your eyes and pray. No, it, it, it does. It means stop. And so think about your listening to this. As you're listening to this and you're hearing this, you might be going, oh, that's fascinating. But a couple of these are going to hit you and you're like, this might be me. I think this is me. When you're hearing this, you write down, yes, like I think this is me or maybe this is me or no way, like I would never be involved in that ministry. That sounds terrifying or I wouldn't even enjoy it. It would kill me to have to do that every day. So then write no, okay? So the first one on the list is prophecy. And when you have the gift of prophecy, God enables you to proclaim his truth with accuracy, power, and clarity in a timely and culturally meaningful or culturally appropriate way that leads to correction in the lives of other people, edification, which means building them up in the truth of God and the knowledge of who he is, and repentance, which means turning your heart back to God. So we just sang that song this morning, and part of that faster part, it says, I won't bow down to idols. And so what it's saying, I'm going to turn away from the false sources of life in my life, and I'm going to turn back to the living God. Okay, so that's what happens when the gift of prophecy is yours. And it also is what's happening when somebody has the gift of prophecy and you're listening and you're like, I didn't know that was wrong. I need to not do that anymore. I remember the first time that I realized the gift of prophecy was happening. It was at chapel in my college and the, the guy who was speaking was keep speaking on pornography. And I was like, it's wrong to look at that? I can't believe that. And it was really confusing, but I was so convicted. I knew he was right, even though it didn't fit into the pagan value system that I grew up with, right? And I was like, how could that be wrong? It feels so right. But he's saying it's wrong, and I need to listen to him. And I remember this war between my flesh and my spirit at that point in time. And praise God, the spirit won. You know, I was like, this guy is speaking the truth of God, and I need to listen to this today, and I need to act on it today. I need to change my choices. And so I started talking about that with people. And first of all, they were like, Stop that. You know, you, you stop being honest with me about your relationship with God, right? Because sometimes we get uncomfortable with that. We want to resist repentance ourselves. But then others were like, that hit me between the eyes too because that guy had the gift of prophecy, okay? So the prophet, the person with prophecy, asks in every situation that they come to, what went wrong and what caused this? So you could be in a meeting reviewing something and everything went really well. And this prophet person is like, uh, there was this moment, just wasn't right. Something went wrong there. We, we got to fix that. We got we to make everything right. So the prophet tends to see things in black and white ways. Either it's wrong or it's right. And there's not gray area. Either it's within God's will and it's part of God's truth 
or it's not. And if it's not, then we need to be clear about it, and we need to all move back to agreeing with God's truth and standing on God's truth. This is the mission of the prophet, to get you all to be right all the time. Their character, the prophet is often persuasive. They can often read people and the things happening in their lives spiritually, which can make some of us uncomfortable. But we have to remember, if we have the gift or we're using that gift, we're using it for God's glory. We need to do it with gentleness, respect, and love for the building up of the church, right? So prophets are not called to tear down the people of God. They're called to tear down lies and spiritual strongholds. But our enemy is not flesh and blood, right? But the spiritual powers and forces and principalities. Uh, They're often opinionated. So they often have a loud mouth in the meetings. And you're like, gosh, it's a good point, but we should just be quiet. You know, you just, I've had enough of your opinions today. Thank you. They often prefer large groups and they're not great at one-on-one ministries. So you go to a conference.